Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Paul Kopp from the Vienna Symphonic Library. First of all, there's good news if you want to press vinyl, and especially if you want to press short runs of vinyl. Well, what does a short run mean? Well, it's 50 copies, 100 copies, 300 copies. Usually, most pressing plants today are going to have a minimum of 300. And anything below that, they're not really going to pay attention to. And if they do, you're way in the back of the line. It might take you as much as nine months before you actually get your product pressed. Well, a Taiwanese company called Mobinico has come up with a brand new pressing machine. And this is built from scratch. It's not based on the existing technology or any of the existing machines. This is brand new. And it's made specifically for very short runs of 50, 100, 200, not many at all. Now, if you talk to any pressing plant, they'll tell you that they're manufacturing probably as many records as they did in 1994. But the big difference is, in 1994, there were maybe 100 titles a week, and they were all doing like 50,000. Today, there's 1,000 titles, and they're all doing like 200. And as a result, there's a big backlog, and the backlog comes from galvanics. What are galvanics? Well, the way a vinyl record is made is you cut a lacquer, which is vinyl. It's very, very soft plastic. Then that goes to a plant that electroplates it. And the electroplate is then peeled off, and that's where a lot of the pops and clicks come in, especially if it's not done right. Then it's electroplated again. And this time, it's a positive, so it can't be used as a stamper. So they electroplate it a third time. And at that point, it's a negative, and it's used as a stamper. And you might say, well, why do they do that? Well, stampers wear out. So let's say you're pressing 100 or 1,000, and all of a sudden your record blows up and you need 10,000. Well, you can't do it off of just one stamper. Maybe you're actually going out to different pressing plants and you're sending different stampers out to each one. But this process takes a lot of time. It's also not environmentally friendly, as you might imagine, so it can only be done in certain places. But... That's what really gives the big, big backup to pressing vinyl. The cool thing about this brand new press is that it's auto-calibrating, so you're actually pressing records from record number one. You might say, well, doesn't the current presses do that? No. What happens is they have to warm up, you press a few, then it hits the right temperature, then you actually go from there. And then when it's changing to a different product, a different stamper, it actually has to cool down again. This one is auto-calibrating, so there's no warm-up or cool-down. So how much does a record cost with this stamper? If you only want 25 and you can get a short run that's only that, it's about $630. And for 100 it's around 915 So when you think about it, that's $9.15 a record, which is really high. But the fact of the matter is, it's not that bad when you consider that Almost everybody is selling direct anymore. So there's a pretty good margin there. You're probably going to at least mark it up by 100%. So that's not as big a deal as it used to be. So there's light at the end of the tunnel if you really want vinyl because solutions are coming your way. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success. 
at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, as all of you have heard, there's a big computer chip shortage. And one of the things that really contributed to it was the fact that there was a huge fire. Actually, there were multiple fires that happened in different chip manufacturers. But one of the biggest one for the audio industry was a place in Japan called AKM. And in October 2020, there was a fire that was pretty major in that it took 82 hours to actually put out. At first, they thought it was just one floor of a five-floor building. But when they get into it, they found out that parts of the building had actually collapsed and there were major structural issues with the plant. Not only that, making computer chips, or LSI, which is large-scale integrated chips, it's a very clean process. You have to have clean rooms. And of course, with the fire, there's all sorts of smoke all over the place. So it basically shut the plant down. And at first, everyone was saying, okay, we're probably going to be able to fix this in three months, six months at most. And then when they looked at it, it was, oh, this is very serious. So as a result, audio manufacturers, keyboard manufacturers have been scrambling trying to get chips. AKM makes analog to digital converter chips and digital to analog converter chips, especially for the audio industry. And that's the high-end audio industry. It's the low-end. They have something for everyone, but they didn't when the plant closed. Now, that being said, they're now producing new chips. And they even started shipping at the end of January. This is because they're actually using subcontractors to do it. Everybody thought there's no more capacity anywhere, but they managed to pull it off. So a whole new line of ADCs and DACs are coming out. Deliveries down to about three or four months. So now manufacturers are kind of over the moon because a lot of those supply chain issues aren't as much of a problem anymore. Just for some background, AKM started making audio chips in 1980. They've had 2,500 manufacturers use their chips in over 3.5 billion audio devices. Yeah, they're big. My guest this week is Paul Kopf, who is the product manager for the go-to orchestral sample library for most film composers, the Vienna Symphonic Library. A composer, producer, musician, and singer, Paul has been a staff member of VSL since the year 2000 when the company was founded. And he's an expert for the world's largest orchestral database with several million recorded samples. As a product manager, Paul is responsible for product design, beta testing, presentation, and documentation, and is closely involved with customer support. He also does many of VSL's numerous video tutorials and travels around the world holding clinics and presenting the latest products and music events everywhere. During the interview, we spoke about the secret behind what makes VSL so popular, the process of recording the samples for the library, virtually placing the players on the stage, the piano robot, and much more. I spoke with Paul from his home in Liechtenstein. Let's start with your history first. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have a jazz background and I studied piano at the university in Vienna. And that one thing thing led to another and I kind of came into the whole production thing and uh, media music and some prop productions. And at some point, um, Herb Tutzmantel, the founder of the Vienna Symphonic Library, gave me a call and said, hey, I, need, I, I need something modern 
to add to my orchestral scores that he was doing at that time. That's how we got acquainted. And that, and when I found out that he was thinking about a sample library that could come up to his expectations as a very, uh, as a great cello player, I just, um, I just thought I'd support him there. He wanted to do a, a, you know, a one or a two year project. And then suddenly everything went very fast. And he was already thinking in, in very um, high numbers. Back then, a sample library was like 10,000 samples, maybe 8,000, Miroslav Vitus. And he was already going to this direction of uh, three, 400,000 samples. And I, I was like, this is crazy. If you want to do this, you need a few, you need support. And yeah, and it worked out so well that it's, that we've, we kept on going since then. Let's just go back and get some history about the library then. It's fascinating, as I understand. Um, the key point for making this whole endeavor interesting is the legato technique, connecting notes. That was not possible back then. And everybody was, everybody was thinking about how to make samples come alive a little bit more. And when we put the right minds together and found a way to have a software program automatically detect what kind of interval you're playing, and then picking the right connection note from the note you were playing, wherever you go. If that happens within milliseconds, you're actually performing the instrument. You get the slides with the violin, you get the valves with the trumpet, always depending on what the instrument can do, you can replicate that on your master keyboard. And then it was not only legato, so connected different note uh, hates, but it was um, repetitions, repeated notes. The same thing happens there. If you repeat a note and your trumpet is already filled with air, the next repeated connected note will sound different. Depending on your speed, if you're playing long, uh, long notes repeated or short notes, all of these details, that was, that was the key that, that was our focus on capturing that with the instruments and then making it available for the musicians. And and I remember how, if, how how that was really a thing. You you demonstrated that, and everybody was blown away. What's interesting there is you would think that would be fairly simple today with artificial intelligence to figure some of that out. But this was, what, 20 years ago? More than 20 years ago, yeah. And we also had this, we were working underground for at least two years to get something going. We had a private investor who thought that was, it's kind of a crazy idea. No banks would support this, right? Mm -hmm. If you come up with an idea like this, they're like, where are the figures? Where are the numbers? What are you projecting? And we just, we didn't have any comparisons. So uh, we had, we could work for two years and then we presented this whole thing at first at the AES and then at the NAM show. And <laughs> The weirdest things happened, right? At the NAM show, for example, we came up, we wanted to demonstrate this whole thing with a, with a whole cube. What, uh, it's a, an 11-ton cube so that in the chaos and mayhem of, of NAM, you'd be in a separate room that lets you listen to the samples. And there was a harbor, harbor strike. Oh. So the whole equipment just didn't show up. And um, yeah, we improvised and it worked out in the end, but it was, there, was some, there was some stress in between every now and then. Where was that, New York or, or San Francisco or? Uh, Los Angeles. Los Angeles, okay, LA. Yeah. yeah. I used to work for uh, an English console company called AMEC 
I mean, recording consoles. And we were doing an AES show in New York. And the vice president of sales was very frustrated with the Teamsters getting the crates very slowly. And he mentioned about it, oh, these people have just two speeds, slow and stop. And the next morning, there was the AES paper that comes out. He was on the front cover <laughs> with this quote. And we found it on one of the consoles with a big red arrow through it. They were not happy, but it got even worse because then at the very end of the show on the loadout, we were the last ones to get our crates. And then when they opened up the crates back in the UK, one of the consoles had an open can of red paint <laughs> all over it. So you have to be careful. You know what the you have is. to be careful. <laughs> I also remember that the shipping costs from Vienna, from Europe to the US were the same as getting the whole thing from in front of the NAM show into the NAM show. And we had our Austrian power horse guys who like they built and designed this whole thing and uh, they had trouble with the speed there as well. But it, yeah, it worked. And I also learned the meaning of Sir, I can't let you do that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you're like, you're stepping up two steps on a ladder and somebody's pulling you off again because of the danger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Tell me about the recording process. The samples, every single one of them just sounds so beautiful. How long does it take to record a sample and, and what's the process? The whole process of recording an instrument takes years, depending on what the instrument can do. The piccolo flute is not as expressive as a solo violin. Uh, with a solo violin, I think our first run through there was like 200,000 samples. So there are a few factors that are important. First of all, the venue must sound good and the recording equipment must be okay. Second and very important is that the musician feels feels great in this hall, wherever they're recording. And we started with the uh, silent stage, as we called it, a perfectly isolated, specifically built recording stage for this purpose, not as big as the synchron stage, Vienna, where we are now, um, where we recorded pretty close, but with, with a very distinct um, ambience of the room that was captured. Like right now, everybody says it's dry samples. It's not really dry. It has this kind of touch of the silent stage, but it's on the dry side. Um, when you record that, the challenge is to get everything, to, to make everything connect to each, to every different articulation. The staccato in this certain range has to have the same sound as the legato in this certain range, as the repetitions. And the that's easy in the comfort zone of each instrument, but it gets harder the higher or lower you get. Um, and keeping that balance and having that feeling to make sure that everything fits, if you switch between articulations that may have been recorded, I don't know, half a year apart, it's th th that's pretty tricky to just catch up and make sure that everything fits well for the musicians, for the recording engineer. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a very important part, yeah. Well, I would think that just from sample to sample, the consistency that you need must be really difficult. Consistency is important. Musicality is important. There are many things that musicians are not aware of, like, for example, trumpet players who never notice that when they take the instrument off their lips, 
there's a, there's a slight little or um, learning that the wrong shirt can also be really bad at recordings. Like if you have a if you have certain materials, you still hear it when you're moving. String players use usually also breathe with their playing. Oh yeah, yeah. And just to give it, just learning that's a relearning for the musicians. So it's, I'd say it's a very good training camp for every musician to record with us because um, you're learning things that you didn't know about your instrument yet. I bet. And uh, you're you're also developing like I know a trombone player, a trombone player who said his he's got like extra muscles from from this kind of training because we were we have to push the musicians as well. And um, but the results, of course, are playable instruments that also capture the musician in a certain way. So you went from silent stage to another stage, right? Yeah, silent stage was until 2015, and that was that was around 15 years. And then we found this place in Austria that used to be a, a broadcasting, like the Hollywood of Vienna. They they recorded all those um, um, all those movies there. It was built in the forties, and it was it was very it's a it's a great location. The whole area there, and the reason why we got this synchron stage Vienna is that there is a landmark protection for the last big cinema organ that's available in in Europe, and. They were not allowed to tear this uh, recording stage down. So we had the opportunity to get it, renovate it, refurbish it, and uh, make it a modern recording studio, scoring studio. And uh, we took that opportunity. It took two years to get everything up and running. And now it's uh, now everybody's coming to Vienna to not only for the samples, but really to record, of course, uh, movie scores and really uh, make classical recordings. So the silent stage you wanted on the dry side, but this is more like a performance stage and right? performance environment. There's a very good reason why you want to be on the dry side or why we wanted to be on the dry side. And that's um, flexibility in mixing. If you don't have a perfect stage or you don't have the perfect ambience, which we didn't have, we had the 80 square meter silent stage. You want a dry recording because we were also, we already knew that technology would go with us and impulse responses would make it possible to position instruments in a virtual space. So that's also a software that we developed on top of, or additionally to these uh, dry instruments, the multi-impulse response reverberation engine MIR. And then we captured basically the fingerprints of different venues in Europe that, and the software allows you to position those instruments anywhere on the stage or on specific points in these venues and play around um, with, an, with virtual capsules to actually have your microphone organized in the way that a recording engineer would do it. So that, that was always a, a concept that went hand in hand, the dry samples and the, uh, the impulse response reverberations that depending on where you are with your instrument on the stage, uh, the software is picking the right impulse response f- for you. I can see how valuable that would be. When was that developed? 
I'd say from 2003 to 2006 or seven, I think it was in the market in 2006. And uh, then we started adding more and more venues. And it's still kind of a, it's still kind of a trade secret to work with Mir Pro because it works with everything. It brings everything in, in one stage. And it doesn't matter if it's, all, it's, if it's our instruments or other dry signals or uh, your voice or whatever you want to put into that virtual stage. Everything works. And, and this, the sonic glue that's happening in Mir Pro with all these different impulse responses, it's not the same as having one impulse response on all the instruments and just add a little bit of um, like um, dry and wet, just re regulating dry and wet. It's really being having different signals on different positions on stage. Oh, it makes sense because that's, that's the way it would normally be anyway. Exactly. And it's the details that make everything kind of sound very authentic and realistic. And it's the, and the other part is you don't have to play around with parameters on your mixing desk but you have a visual interface that lets you actually, you know, turn the musician the way you want, you want to turn them and uh, broaden the stereo image. The further you are away, the more mono your signal will be, the, the closer you get, the wider the stereo, all these things are taken into consideration. And it's, it's, it's also a great learning tool of what happens if I position trumpets in the back or close up or in the back of a cathedral, for example. How did the musicians feel, the ones that were doing the samples, because ultimately you're doing something that might replace you? That's, a, that's an often asked question. The musicians, all our musicians loved it for the, um, for the possibility that they saw, also for the training and, and, uh, and what happened and what we would hope, what we hope would happen is that the more people are working with symphonic material, the more, in the end, the more real recordings of symphonic material will, will be available because working with samples is also tedious. It's, it's a craft. You sit there and you tweak things. It's much faster than it used to be, but still you have to take all the, the place of every musician in the orchestra. It's, it's, it takes time. And, um, but you can get your ideas across. And if you have the budget, and if you have a movie production or, uh, or a pop production, whatever you want to do, and you convince the producers to say, let's do this with a real orchestra and let's like capture this moment of, I don't know, 80 focused musicians and, uh, and um, conductor who is really, really into it and let's make something special happen. Because single samples are always just one moment and one specific Thing that you captured and also they are always on the, on the on the perfect side of things so that everything fits together and nothing kind of falls apart but what happens in real life is that you get everything that happens in in real life all these little details when people have are, have stress or when when it's getting when you feel the tension when everybody's working together to get that that combination sound that orchestras can deliver I always call it like if you if you're in the goosebump factory when you're recording, that's it. Yeah. And I don't think I mean there are some moments when you're sitting in front of your computer and, and you get that, but there's a different energy. And we we learned that again with when we moved to the synchron stage Vienna, 
this incredible energy that that is so fascinating when you're when you're witnessing any recordings. What's going on with an orchestra is just really it's mesmerizing and and it's uh, and it's captivating and it, it does exactly what it should in a in a movie support and and attack and really grip into your emotions. I live in Burbank, so I can walk to Disney and I can walk to Burbank Studios and Warner Brothers and everything. And I've been to quite a number of those sessions, you know, movie and television scoring sessions with an orchestra. And you're right. There's nothing like it. And it's a goosebump moment right from the beginning, especially with great players like that. Yeah, I had my I had my brother visit lately in the I, I, I wanted to show him what it's like recording all of this. And you had the orchestra, everybody's tuning and every like chaos is going on. And suddenly it's like, this is it. Showtime, six o'clock. Because we're doing a lot of remote stuff, of course, at Synchron Stage Vienna, not only due to COVID, but because it's it's really possible to do that. And suddenly this whole thing takes off and you have this first run and you're sitting there and you, it's it's hard to believe what's happening yeah, there. Yeah. And, and, um, and the level of attention to detail for every note and for every groove and for everything that's flowing in the music. Getting that special attention is also what I think keeps many musicians hooked to what they do. That's what they're training for. This is it. I'm amazed, actually. I, I was on one session. I was listening to the conductor, and he was calling out a violin player. And, you know, he was saying, your articulation is off. And, and I'm thinking, how can he hear that? <laughs> you know, There's 80 musicians in here. How can he hear that? But the attention to detail... You know that something, something, sometimes things are off, and that's communication is a very important point here. If the producer says something, and we're translating this to the to the uh, conductor who is actually talking to the musician, he has to find the right words to make this happen yeah. without letting the atmosphere uh, kind of um, go into the wrong direction. Yeah. You have to have a positive atmosphere when you're doing music or when you're recording these. This, this kind of, uh, especially with movie scores, you have to be really focused. But it's true, recruiting also the, the synchron stage orchestra. You know, we did some training camps just to really get the horn section tight. Or it's just to also improve um, playing to a click and making people accustomed to what's going on. Because everything's going so fast when you're recording. And uh, all these all these things have to work. And um, the experience that, of course, a Los Angeles Orchestra has or had for so many years, that's something we had to we had to build on a on a, on a little bit of a lower foundation and worked our way up. And we knew that we had to accelerate quickly. So um, there there was a lot we we learned a lot over the last five five years. It's five six years. Well, I do know some composers and some producers that have remotely used your orchestra, and they would tell me, you know, it sounded great, and, and the, the price is right, so why not? As compared to going here, difference in price. There are a few things. It's not just the price, I hope. It's, it's always the musician that's first, the musicians that are first, but it's also the atmosphere in the recording stage. You have... Even if it's a virtual visit of a composer or a producer, everybody who's working with us deserves the highest, the highest attention and also, um, you know, a special treatment. Everybody's special. Everybody's coming with their stories. Usually, music comes last in the whole production process. So I'm 
always impressed by how how composers can keep up with that pace and then still be focused when it's about recording when it's about actually recording yeah because they must be really really tired yeah yeah for sure let's come back to the synchron stage this one is more like a, a normal performance environment right yeah the silent stage was supposed to be dry and that's uh that was a it was built to record music basically with one mono microphone hanging in the room capturing uh, uh, the performance of an orchestra. And that kind of special, so, so keeping basses under control, letting the high frequencies soar, the sound of the synchron stage is, is really something else. And when we refurbished it, there were some alterations that, that were done over the time, like uh, some changes in the walls, and we built everything back and that kind of gave that signature sound of the synchron stage Vienna. So when we had, when we finally had a recording stage that where it really makes sense to capture the whole ambience and all the details of the room, that's when multi-mic recording also was possible technically to have that playback with your sample player. Up to now we were working with stereo samples and now it's, um, I don't know, 10 to 20 microphone channels, stereo microphone channels that you can stream on your uh, on your computer for every instrument. That's wild. Wow. It is wild. And and you're talking about these decisions that you have to make and you're just hoping that technology will be fast enough to be there when you need it to be there. And we're always a little bit ahead. It's always It's always like, okay, but you need a really expensive computer to make this happen. But like one year after, it's the average thing you need. And two years after, everybody basically has access to that kind of, to our tools. Multi-mic recording, I'm always so surprised that people prefer to go with presets when they have a lot of parameters and like a mixer with different microphones and you could check out how you could work with all of this and insert effects plugins and so on and just really shape your sounds. The reality that I get is that maybe 20% of our users are really taking advantage of this. Everybody else is going with presets simply because the pressure is so high and the and time is is uh, time is money. Yeah. Well, tell me about the recording process again. Typically what microphones would be used and preamps and things like that. I'm just curious. We have a ton of different uh of different mics. Uh we have a whole microphone hall. We're trying to stay on the on the technically reliable side of things. So it's not the oldest and most uh, most vintage uh, microphones because we're recording all the time. We need, we need microphones that, that have a true sound. We don't have any uh, fallout or no microphone would, you know, just not deliver what it should. And it depends on what we're recording. The room microphones are always the same for our recordings. But depending on the instrument that we're recording, we might place different close mics, mid mics. And I'm the wrong guy to ask what exactly those mics are. Okay. But uh, which we're just choosing from a, from a wide variety of, of microphones that we trust there. And then this whole, all of these, um, all of these signals are going through, a, through right now through an SSL duality. And that's how they record it into tools and then exported and then edited mapped it's it's a long process yeah i could imagine the editing must take a long time 
you need a few extra tools developed specifically for for working with so many samples. Yeah, it's a big process that you're doing because you're developing tools along with the library. That's unique. Yes, but that's that was also it was we started off with Giga Studio and Logic's EXS twenty four, right? Yeah. And then we realized, okay, we can we can try to get our ideas through, and can we can wait for third party, for third party developers to to kind of provide us with the features we need for the software. But it became very clear pretty quickly that if we don't create our own software that fits what we think musically, we'll be slowed down. And um, and that's that's why Vienna Instruments was an important step because. If you can think it, you can do it, but you still have to find the right people to really make that happen in real life. Mm, yeah. I guess film composers must be your most typical customer, right? For the Synchron Stage Vienna, definitely. For our sample library products, Vienna Symphonic Library, it's everybody from talented young musicians over students over the retired orchestral orchestra musician who wants to work, who wants to keep working with music. I think there's a big crowd of people who are really interested in the whole movie score idea because it is, it is a great business. And if you, if you, you're working a lot with cliches and that's something you can actually approach you know what's happening if uh, the horns come in. You know what a, a bassoon will do if you play the way a bassoon usually plays. And if you work with those orchestral colors, I think it, it's uh, it's something you can really lean into and then get better at it and then learn how to develop your ideas. And I think many people love that process. Yeah, I would say a couple of years ago, one of my subscribers asked me what string library they should buy. So I thought, you know, let me ask my film composer friends. Every single one of them said VSL. That's great to hear. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of competition out there. Yeah. And competition is always good for business. And also, I like to say that, you know, sample virtual instruments, it's not a religion. You can mix and match and just take whatever fits whatever fits what you're after. And I think it's great to have different tools, tools in the shed to, to, to pick the right one, whatever you, whatever you want to do. Our mission there is to capture what, what we're trying, we're trying to capture instruments in a way that they really can stand their ground for a very long time with so many samples for each instrument and all the software that's involved you can still play the solo violin we recorded 20 years ago. It's It really sounds great. We've, we've recorded in a different way. We've learned so much along the way, but they stand the test of time. And you can work with those sounds and just incorporate it in anything you want to. And But still, every violin player has a different tone and touch, and every instrument is different, and every recording location and microphone and so on. So the more choice you have, the better. There are many options out there that can keep you, keep you going and keep you inspired as a musician. And I think that's great. Tell me about the robot piano. <laughs> yeah, that was another thing. If you ever sampled a piano or you try to, to, to sample that, a piano is a very deep instrument. It has a lot of dynamic options. And if you want to do that in a, 
controlled way. Back then it was a hundred velocities we wanted to capture. And the resolution MIDI goes from zero to 127, the MIDI signals. Advanced pianos back then already had a much higher resolution, like 5,600 steps to record whatever you were playing it and then playing back all those nuances. And to capture an instrument reliably with the same pressure applied and the same, not only hitting the key, but also the release speed, that's something you can try as a musician and sit down and try to get that right every time, but it will take you very, very long. And additionally, the whole editing process also means when you thought you were playing the 17th note of mezzo forte, it was actually the 14th, but only for G3 because G sharp three and so on. So it's easy to go crazy, but if you have a robot doing that, you have a production process there that works not only for one piano, but for diff- for all the pianos in the same way. And um, our synchron pianos, that's that's a, another new world. And that's also an, a, another another crowd of people. And pianists are crazy for pianos, like guitarists are crazy for guitars. But um, concert pianos are expensive. Yeah. And if you can have like four or five of them at the cost of, I don't know, you know, $2,000, it's uh, it's just great to play those instruments. And I can see how you can get addicted to that. And whenever we announce a new piano, everybody's like, oh my God, it's, it's a new piano. And um, with a piano, you have the same problem as you have in, in, your, in your home. You can have a great concert piano, but you need the right room for it. If the room's too small or too high or whatever, it will, it will just not sound as good. So you're not, you don't only get the recording of the piano, you get the whole the whole ambience and the whole recording situation of Synchron Stage Vienna. And I think that makes it extra exclusive. Very cool. Is there something that you won't do? Generally speaking, yes. But for sampling, our focus is on the symphonic material. We did a few rock drums. We did a set of three rock drums. We did an an electric guitar. Um, But our focus business is definitely on symphonic sounds. It would be interesting to get more exotic percussion maybe in or exotic instruments, but that always depends on having players and instruments available. And we also think that the market out there is is quite busy already, you know, with these specialized maybe ouds or um, instruments you don't hear in the in the European or in the Western musical world. That's something that will maybe come later on. For now, it's really capturing what makes sense for the for media composers right now and for everybody who's who's interested in that symphonic touch of things. Sure. Okay, last question, Paul. What's the best advice that you've been given or maybe something that you learned along the way? Because this has been a, quite a long journey for you. True. What I've learned over the time is that when you think you're done, that's when the real work starts. Whenever you, you're, you're, you're sketching out these, these steps that you need for a product to be ready or for a score to be, uh, to be recorded. And when you're at that point where you think that's it, everything's, everything's now just supposed to happen, that's when you have a lot of options to improve things essentially. If you take a step back and think, is, is that really it? Did I overlook something? Are there more screws to to 
to make those decisions that I made before a little bit clearer for the music or for the instrument. And I think if you take that extra time, you can add like 30 to 50% of uh, more, more inspiration and more quality to your product. That's also a reason why we don't announce our products in advance. Because if we announce and promise something and we don't deliver in time, because we're taking those extra steps to make, to make things better, it just causes misunderstandings and disappointment. But if you announce something that's ready when it's ready and it's really good, then I think you have a winner. You can find out more about Paul and the Vienna Symphonic Library at vsl.co.at. That's vsl.co.at. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.